Messages is sponsored by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com slash US. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, August 24th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Dow is down. Therefore, things are terrible. So why are things terrible? Two big reasons. Because oil prices are so low and China is doing so poorly. Now, here's why it's weird. If I asked most Americans this following question over the last decade, what would they say? Here's the question. After terrorism, name the biggest problems for the United States internationally. The answers right up there, maybe first and third would be rise of China, high oil prices. So how is it that when both of these problems get problems of their own, things are bad for Americans? Couple explanations. One, maybe Americans were wrong, but Americans weren't wrong. Two, maybe the stock market is wrong, but the stock market wasn't wrong. Not in what the stock market's trying to do. Here's the explanation. It's number three, the stock market's priorities are mostly independent from American priorities. Sure, there's overlap. Like, if the economy's doing really poorly, the overall stock market will probably do poorly. The stock market, meaning the Dow Jones, we're using that as shorthand, went from 14,000 to 6,600 in the year and a half when the recession, the recent recession first hit and raged. But as the overall economy came back, it came limping back in real life, but the stock market came soaring back. It went bananas. It went to over 18,000. And today it closed at a hair less than 16,000. So I'd say that Wall Street has a big, big slice of the American prosperity pie. When there is no pie, when there's a recession, Wall Street hurts too. But when there's any sort of pie at all, Wall Street feeds upon it. Now, the weird thing is that a weakened China's economy and low oil, actually, that is good for most Americans, not all Americans, some sectors, that's not true. And anyway, the Chinese economy is good in that it will curtail the Chinese military. Actually, having a good trading partner with China has a lot of good things for America. But still, all of this news, add it all up, add the hundreds of points the Dow has dropped in the last couple days, I wouldn't get my shaving foam in a lather about it. On the other hand, the guy I spiel about, a prominent politician who keeps saying that China is killing us, and he also provides a helpful ranking of secretaries of state. We'll also give you some hot tips from your gift card girlfriend, bet you didn't know you had one. But now, one woman's stunning and heartbreaking ordeal with celiac disease. Actually, it's kind of funny. Here at the Slate office, we like to keep things fun and light on Friday, so we relax the dress code, and women are allowed to wear tasteful slacks, and the men may unbutton their collars to the navel. No, I kid. We could wear what we want all the time, but on Fridays, we sometimes have spirits, beer, drink. So whenever I am tasked with organizing Beer Friday, I buy beverages that are pleasing to all, but I always remember to buy two bottles of gluten-free beer, not because I I am kowtowing to the latest health trend, but because I know Slate senior editor Laura Bennett is gluten-free, legit's gluten-free, celiac disease. So now she's in a weird position. She has an ailment, a diagnosable ailment, 
the treatment of which has become really, really trendy. She has written about this in Slate, an article called I Was Gluten-Free Before It Was Cool. Hello, Laura. Hi, Mike. Celiac disease, I'm saying that right? You're saying that right. What is it? It is an autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. Get ready. This is very exciting. It's an autoimmune disease in which the villi, which are sort of the absorbent tentacles in your small intestine, get flattened whenever you consume gluten, which is this kind of mysterious wheat protein hybrid. You know, it's not any visible ingredient or grain. It's a hybrid of two proteins. And when you eat it, when you have celiac disease, you can't absorb any other nutrients because it flattens your your villi. So when you first were diagnosed, uh, how did it show up? You were nine. Well, I feel like such a doofus even talking about this. But when I was nine, I was, I guess, you know, listeners out there can't see me now, but I'm a normal-sized human woman. And when I was nine, I was, I was diagnosed with what my doctor called failure to thrive. And the description I used in my piece was I looked like a tiny goblin with bangs. Yeah. Really gobliny, just so shriveled and malnourished and pale. Also, incisive type teeth, and you lusted after people's gold. That also. Other goblinish traits also. Yes, that's true. Green, Uh, evil, in league with Satan. Uh Uh-huh. Walked on all fours. Um, (laughs) but, (laughs) uh, But I was just so small and, you know, pitiful and wayfish. So went to the doctor. They tried to figure out why I hadn't gained any weight for the past year or so. And they figured out through a variety of tests that I had celiac, so which meant I wasn't absorbing any nutrients from food. And I was consuming pasta like a fiend because I loved pasta because kids love pasta. And so I was uh, really in bad, in very bad shape. So immediately you thought mm-hmm. your life would be no more good fun stuff. Never, never again a slice of cake. And that was true. Yeah. And things were mm-hmm. bad. I mean, things were bad back then Those in the mid-90s. Days. Yeah. The, right. So it's, it's sort of the crucial tension in this piece of very important journalism that I produced. It's a is that, journalism. <laughs> is yeah. that on the one hand, things were desolate. You know, I, I had to really search to get, I mean, I if I wanted, say, a donut, mm-hmm. it was like a gauntlet I had to run. It was like you could mail order frozen sorghum donuts from certain dark corners of the internet. but Originally, the yeah. dark internet was called right. the sorghum donut yes, internet. Yes, that's yeah. what they still call it. <laughs> <laughs> sorghum donuts. Like at that point, it, I mean, even if sorghum donuts were available at the sorghum donut place next door, would you really want to eat them? At it the seems t- <laughs> awful. They do not taste good. Yeah, I would not say. One remarkably consistent trait of gluten-free food over the years is that it doesn't taste food-like. Mm-hmm. It's just so hard and so it just doesn't have any of the sponginess or like springiness that characterizes normal dough. So, but, but basically the tension was that, you know, I couldn't find food anywhere. But as a little kid, I sort of grew to, I, I liked feeling slightly alien. Like there was something a little bit goofy about having celiac disease, but it was benign, like not in any, it wasn't sort of a trait that reflected anything real about my character or my taste or my brain, but it was, no one else knew what it was. I had to explain it. It was kind of my, my thing. Yeah. Until decades later, gluten took over the New York Times style section. How has the change gone for you? When did you first notice it? Was there a place where you said, that's it, we've officially landed in an area of glutenlessness? Well, you know, after so many years feeling like no one had ever heard of gluten and that gluten-free products were very hard to come by, I remember the exact moment when I first experienced this sort of title shift. And it was 2013. 
I went to a restaurant, and there was this big Italian waiter, a little bit sort of of a charmingly gruff manner. And I said, do you happen to have, I think I was asking about chicken fingers. I don't know why they would have those at an Italian restaurant, but I said, are they breaded? And he said, why do you want to know or something? And I replied, I'm allergic to gluten. And he said, not another one. And he turned on his heels. He had an Italian accent, which I'm not doing justice, justice to. Turned so when he said, why do you want to know? It was yeah. like a conspiratorial, who's asking? Exactly. Right. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. That not another one really burned. Yeah. You know, and I remember it stuck with me all these years later. But it also seems to me that the waiters or anyone who makes the joke, it's in, what was that Seth Rogen movie? This yeah, is the end, they debate gluten-freeness. Gluten's a vague term. It's, it's, it's something that's used to categorize things that are bad. You know, calories, that's a gluten. Fat, that's a gluten. Somebody just told you, you probably shouldn't eat gluten. You're like, oh, I guess I shouldn't eat gluten. Gluten means bad shit, man, and I'm not eating it. Well, the way I've described it is what I imagine it feels like to love a band that yeah. you know about and think is cool and then to slowly watch it climb the Billboard Hot 100 where it's just you have to sort of disentangle it from your self-perception a little bit. You're like, how did everybody find out about it? They don't even really get it. And so it's a little bit of a dance that you do with yourself. So I wouldn't say I feel a disdain for sort of the, you know, the masses who have yeah. who have climbed on the gluten train. I, you know, I understand whatever. If it works for you, it works for you. So two decades of glutenlessness. What are some of the great glutenless hacks that you know about? I have learned there are some brands to be avoided at all costs. Essentially, bread that comes out of the freezer is, I hate to make such a blanket judgment, but it's nearly always very bad, like remarkably flavorless. Dense is really the adjective I would you know, apply to gluten-free bread. Like Udi's I found to be a very good brand. They make bagels that Udi's. are you know, spongier than normal. Quinoa pasta. Yes. Is like I like the tricolored rotelli that comes in a plastic bag. Don't know the brand because I forget, but it's just second nature to me at this point. I reach for it whenever I'm in Whole Foods. That just listeners is the best gluten free pasta. She's gluten free <laughs> because she has to be. <laughs> Laura Bennett, Slate editor, senior editor. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Mike. This podcast, The Gist, is sponsored by Volvo. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, get close, wander more, stargaze, do it all. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. The wonder of summer event from Volvo. Go to volvocars.com US or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. Gift cards. You know what they bring to mind? They bring to mind the idea of systems that don't fail well. When a gift card works, you take it, you go to a store that's in business within the time frame allotted on the gift card, and you get that much merchandise. But see, every little thing I've laid out has a trap in it, a time bomb. Just the other day, I was trying to investigate what to do with this gift card of a store that since changed names, that seems to have an expiration date, but I thought they weren't supposed to have expiration dates. And I got to tell you, I did the thing called Googling. I went online. I did not find an answer, but I found a resource, and I'm bringing this resource to you. Joining me now is Shelly Hunter. She bills herself as your gift card girlfriend. She's a spokesperson, a spokesgirlfriend for uh, giftcards.com. Shelly, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. So I first came across your name in an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think, about borders and 
it got me thinking. I appreciate the convenience of gift cards, but there's something about the industry that makes them inconvenient. And one really inconvenient thing is when a company goes bankrupt and there you are holding the gift card. What's a gift card holder to do? Right. Yeah. You know, um, and not even just bankrupt. Like if you have a store that's inconvenient for you, right. it's just what I find is um, by and large, people use their gift cards, but the problems they run into is when they wait too long to use a gift card. And so that's when you would be dealing with a company going out of business or, you know, I lost my gift card. All those things that customers complain about gift cards generally come because they just don't use them right away. Now, I have this in my hand, part of this dining program that gives you like 10% off in certain restaurants. And they used to mail you a check, which was money. And I'd put it in my bank and it would be (laughs) money. Now they mail me a gift card, which is they call a prepaid reward card. And though the funds do not expire, you know, it's always for the amount of 2414. You can't really put funds on the card. So I got like three of these in my wallet, uh, each with like $8 left because I filled up a tank of gas and that's what I was left over. How do I, you know, you got any advice for me? I totally do. Uh, The first thing I would do, go someplace you shop. Like Amazon is a great place to use a gift card for $8.23. You can essentially buy an Amazon gift card an e-gift card, have it mailed right to you, and then apply it to your Amazon account. I do that. You're brilliant. You just changed my life. This is what the interview is worth for that sentence. (laughs) That's why I'm your girlfriend. I'm going to help you do this. So I do that all the time. If I have $2.43 left on a Visa gift card, let's say, I'll buy an e-gift card on Amazon and then just apply it to my account. I think you could do the same thing with an iTunes. Anything where you are buying something in advance, where they have, where the retailer is set up to hold your credit. Right. Now, let's say you have a Starbucks card and you live in California. In California, retailers are required to give you cash back on anything less than $10. So again, state by state basis, some have a $5 limit, some have a no limit. But if you have a retailer card in California, you just say, I'd like the cash back now. But that's not right. But that's not for my American Express issue prepaid reward card. Right. So for your prepaid reward card, again, use them right away. Use them online is an easier way to do it and Mm -hmm. not have to be at the store for $24.14. Okay. So I don't want to let you off the phone without if there's one great gift card hack, gift card piece of advice thing that we don't know about gift cards that you do that you could tell the audience. Discount gift cards are a great way to save money. So a discount gift card is one that somebody else received and they don't want. And they might not want it because it's just not convenient for them. They don't like that store. They might not want it because they'd rather have cash and they'll take less than the face value for that gift card. So with a discount gift card, you can get full face value for less. You create your own sale when you go shopping. We've got back to school time coming up, but the holidays coming up, or just anytime you have a planned expense, you can look on giftcards.com. We have discount gift cards. There are apps like Savia and Gift Card Granny is a place that has a whole list of all the discount gift cards that are available. So looking at those cards other people have and they don't want is one way to save money with gift cards rather than just having them throw that in the door. The same thing for you. If you have a gift card you don't want, you'd rather have cash, you can sell it. If you have a $100 gift card, you might get $75, $80 for it. Better than having a piece of plastic that you're not going to use. Do the retailers themselves advertise discount gift cards in their stores? 
No, for no. sure not. And <laughs> but like warehouse stores, Costco, Sam's Club, and places like that will have discount gift cards. However, what stores are more likely to do is have that bonus gift card. So if you buy a gift card for, you know, it'll say something like, if you buy $500 in gift cards this week, you will get $20 back in groceries, or you can get a bonus gift card, or buy a $50 gift card to our restaurant, and you get a $10 gift card you can come back with. What I always caution people with is when you see a gift card for less, and it's a place you like to shop, buy the gift card. There's no rule that says you have to give it away. So like Subway restaurant, I don't know if it's still going on, but they frequently have something else say buy $25 in Subway gift cards and you get a free sandwich. Well, if I'm taking my family to lunch there, I'll just buy the $25 gift card, get the free sandwich, and then use the gift card to pay for my other sandwiches. So you don't have to give these gift cards away, and I'm using it to get more out of the gift card. We're definitely going to get to a point where someone takes hostages and demands gift cards in return. <laughs> you know that's the next step. An unmarked gift card that can't that has no expiration date. Is there a Bitcoin gift card? Is that one out there yet? <laughs> Seems to destroy the purpose of Bitcoin. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Shelly Hunter is your gift card girlfriend. She's at giftcards.com. Thanks a lot, Shelly. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And now the spiel, worst ever. So let me tell you a little bit about the gist. When I took the job, I was a little worried about one thing, and that's thinking of something interesting to say every day. I mean, every day. Actually, I kind of have to think of two interesting things. It's a little burden I've put on myself. So far, I've been doing so good, but, you know, what if I run dry? What if I get gister's block, you know? Sometimes I worry about that. Well, I did worry about that until a gift came along and was given to me, and that man's name is Trump. I could just do a whole podcast called Shit Trump Says and I'd never run out of material as a jumping off point, as a fact check, as a piece of fanfic sci-fi. It all works. There's the things he says, like he'll never eat Oreos again. There's the things he doesn't say, like he won't say that Obama's an American. And there's the things that he doesn't actually say, but kind of grunts. And when Jeb Bush... uh... Again, play it again. And when Jeb Bush... uh, One more time, slow it down. Let's really revel in it. And when Jeb Bush... uh, What was the substance of your critique against Jeb Bush? Uh, you know, he's a little, uh. I don't know, the guy's kind of, uh. I think that's actually a good assessment. Then, every once in a while, Trump will get historical, and I just get enraptured, inspired, enlivened. If you take a look at what's going on in terms of relationship with the United States, everybody hates us. Hillary Clinton was the worst Secretary of State in the history of the United States. Hillary was the worst. In the history of the United States, there's never been a Secretary of State so bad as Hillary. Now, Trump was challenged about this assessment, not in this interview. That was from NBC. There was a different interview also on NBC. Chuck Todd said, all right, well, name who was the worst secretary of state before Hillary Clinton, which is kind of a nice, not too confrontational way of saying, can you name any other secretaries of state? But Trump just said, I'll tell you who's the second worst, which is not what Chuck Todd asked, and said, I'll tell you who's the second worst. He said it was John Kerry. He's the second worst, and the worst is Hillary Clinton. Who'd the third worst be? I'm sure Trump would say, well, if George Bush had appointed his brother, it'd be him. Uh... Got me to thinking. 
because that's what Trump does. He gets me to thinking. Who actually is the worst secretary of state ever? Unlike presidents, historians debate who the best and worst presidents are. They rank the presidents. Late breaking news. U.S. Grant's been doing well reputationally. Jackson not doing well. This is all stuff that's happened in the last two decades. Jackson's been, been hurt by the last two decades. Anyway, there are some secretaries of state who are bad. Like, you can't say that Abel Upshur was a good Secretary of State when the number one thing that John Tyler's Secretary of State believed in was that the United States needed to get Texas into the Union as a slave state. I know we benefit from history, but Abel Upshur, who was blowed up in 1844 when a gun exploded during an official function aboard the President's steamship, the USS Princeton, Abel Upshur does not do well with history. Actually, he was honored in the best way you can honor a guy who done got blowed up on a presidential steam warship. You name a warship after him. The destroyer USS Abel Upshur was commissioned in 1920, and in World War II, there was a ship called the SS Abel Parker Upshur. Imagine being a sailor on the Abel Upshur, a ship named after a guy who blew up on a ship. I don't know. Maybe those sailors are like, hey, you know what? I used to serve on the SS Mutiny. Before that, I was on the USS Scurvy. This is an upgrade. All right, let's go to other bad secretaries of state. You got Millard Fillmore's secretary of state, Edward Everett. Now, Everett's most famous is the guy whose long stem wander of a speech preceded Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and they said Everett was good, but of course, his long speech is lost to history, and everyone remembers the Gettysburg Address. He's kind of now the forgotten opening act. He's like the Shanana of Woodstock, but with politics. So Edward Everett handled what a secretary of state handles, but a main thing he did was he dealt with the issue of Peruvian sovereignty over the guano-rich Lobos Islands. Back then, a whole lot of U.S. foreign policy concerned itself with guano, with bird droppings. And indeed, the Lobos de Tierra, right there off the coast of Peru, is home to kelp gulls, many species of booby, and the guane cormorant. I will quote from Wikipedia, the last two species of which were of great importance during the heyday of guano. Oh, the heyday of guano. Ciclo's son, I'll tell you about the heyday of guano. It was said the streets were paved with guano, and that's no exaggeration. Oh, the guano was everywhere. This doesn't make Edward Everett a bad or the worst Secretary of State. He was just knee-deep in guano. That's what U.S. foreign policy was. It was guano-dependent. This was before the critical pivot to moose crap that you may have read about in AP history class. And of course, way before the critical rhino dung reset. My second worst Secretary of State was Chester A. Arthur's Secretary of State. He was Frederick Freelinghuisen. Freelinghuisen signed a lot of treaties, got a lot of countries to sign treaties, and none of them got approved. He negotiated trade treaties with Spain and the Dominican Republic, scuttled by the Senate. Freelinghuisen negotiated a trade treaty with Mexico, passed the Senate, blocked by the House of Representatives. Freelinghuisen negotiated a canal treaty with Nicaragua, rejected by the Senate. Freelinghuisen's Hawaii treaty actually did become law, but there was a coup against the queen, thus complicating the Freelinghuisen legacy. 
You want to know who the worst secretary of state was? I think it was Robert Smith. Robert Smith was Madison's secretary of state. And Madison just hated the guy from the get-go. He had to appoint him because of politics. This guy had a senator from Maryland named Samuel Smith, better logger than a senator. And he was so bad that Madison had to rewrite his official memoranda. He was so bad that you couldn't send secretary of state Smith to negotiate with the British. The Brits got mad. The Brits thought it was a slap in the face that they weren't meeting the real secretary secretary of state, but he was so bad at his job, they couldn't give him the real secretary of state. All right. So that's the lamest, I think the lamest secretary of state. But I want to talk about one other secretary of state, Frank Kellogg, Coolidge's secretary of state. It says in his official biography, Kellogg's most lasting achievement, for which he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1929, was the negotiation of the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Unlike Freelingheisen, Kellogg got his treaty ratified. Do you remember what the Kellogg-Briand Pact was? The Kellogg-Briand Pact was an agreement, an international Nobel-winning agreement that banned war. No more war. It was signed in the 1920s between World War I and World War II. So that tells you how good a job the pact did. World War II, or as fans of the Kellogg-Briand Pact called it, the war that couldn't possibly happen. My point is, at the time, Kellogg did win the Nobel. The treaty was ratified. He was seen in the moment as a success. So even if you don't take Trump seriously, and by the way, you shouldn't take Trump seriously, even if you don't take him seriously that his assessment of Hillary Rodham Clinton as being the worst, you can't judge any secretary of state in the moment. He also says Hillary Clinton presided only over worsening conditions in the world. And no, things are bad in the world. I don't know if things gotten better, But Tunisia got better, Sierra Leone got better, Cote d'Ivoire got better, Malawi, Myanmar, well, I was doing better, it's trending backwards, but it backslid during Kerry, not during Hillary Rodham Clinton. If you're ahistoric or if you're provincial, the world looks really bad. By the way, even if you're not those things, the world doesn't look all that good. But the point is the world is complicated. Donald Trump is not complicated. So do you believe the way to match complexity is with simple black and white pronouncements? If you do believe that, you're already supporting Donald Trump, who is the best Republican frontrunner in all of history. That's it for today's show. The Secretary of State most like Andrea Salenzi is Hamilton Fish, known to friends as Ham Fish. He is the only Secretary of State named for his choice of entree at state dinners. Secretary of State least like managing producer Joel Meyer is John Middleton Clayton, whose signature achievement was the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty, which proposed a canal through Nicaragua. There is no canal through Nicaragua. Do you want to know why? It's because Panama is skinnier. The Secretary of State most like executive producer Andy Bowers was Alexander Haig. Why? One sentence. I'm in charge here. The gist, I think the gist is sort of like Secretary of State John Sherman, McKinley's Secretary of State. Problem was, McKinley hated John Sherman. Didn't let him come to cabinet meetings, let the Assistant Secretary of State negotiate treaties. But you know why? You know what Sherman believed in? He believed we should trade freely with China, which was right. He opposed the U.S. acquisition of Cuba, and he was right. And he opposed what would become the Spanish-American War. And again, he was right. So the gist, just like John Sherman, totally right on the issues, but barely listened to in the moment.
Thanks for listening. And now an invitation to keep on listening because it's Monday and that means it's a new debut song from They Might Be Giants as part of their Dial a Song initiative. Every Monday they debut a song right here on The Gist. And today's entry is something I've said, but I doubt many secretaries of state have ever said it, though they should have. I just made a mess. I don't know how I did, but now... The whole place is a wreck I made a mess And now I guess That somehow I have got to clean it up It's a catastrophe From ceiling to floor, from wall to the other wall And nothing was said, what wasn't destroyed was Try to find.